Welcome to the Talking Serverless Podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Jones, joined today by Frank Pachut. Frank is an AWS hero, Oracle ACE director, as well as an Oracle certified master with over 20 years of experience in development, data modeling, infrastructure, and all DBA tasks. It's no surprise that Frank is recognized as an expert across Oracle, Postgres, and AWS. Currently, uh, Frank is a developer advocate at Yugabyte, uh, an open source cloud native distributed SQL database. Uh, and you can also keep up with him on his blog, Twitter, podcast, and all that info, of course, will be uh, given in the show notes. So with that, let's go ahead and jump in. Uh, how are you doing today, Frank? Good, very good. It's the evening for me. I'm based in Switzerland. Yeah, that's that's so cool. Uh, for me, it's 2.30. Uh, I'm out here in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean. So <laughs> here in Puerto Rico. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, so I guess like uh, jumping straight in. Uh, so you're doing good. Um, what is that? How long have you been in Switzerland? And uh, what is it like uh, working up there? I, I'm French. I've been working in different countries in Europe and uh, Africa. And I'm in Switzerland for 10 years, and I think I will stay a long time there. Be before, I was moving a lot, but I'm really happy there. Yeah, that's, that's awesome. I, my hope is to get up to Europe and then go to all the different countries, and definitely Switzerland is very high on that list. Um, so that's, that's awesome. Um, yeah, so uh, it's cool to have you on. We haven't had a lot of people that specialize in databases, um, so I'll do my best to represent like a good side uh, but if any of my comments are somewhat uneducated, please, you know, definitely feel free to jump in and, and correct me uh, for the audience. Um, on that note, um, getting into it, how did this whole thing start? How did you get into tech? What led you to it? Did you learn about it when you were very early on in school? Was it something you got onto uh, later on in college? And, and how did it eventually lead to, you know, AWS uh, databases and so on? Yeah, so basically, I've always worked with uh, databases. And yeah, always around databases. After university, my first internship was development with a uh, with a Oracle, and then I've done some uh, some development client server development at that time with Oracle as well. Some with uh, DB2, so those those old uh, databases. I've done uh, a lot of data warehouses because the, those projects was were quite interesting. You touch to all data from the enterprises and, and you directly talk to users and developers. And, and so that was interesting. And then slowly, so this was mostly in development and I learned databases because I had to install it. At that time we had no cloud. So if a small team wanted to start an application on a database, you needed to install and unbox a server and install a software on it and, and learn about network, about storage and all those things. And then finally, I became a DBA. Not like I wanted to become a, a DBA, but I was more and more involved in understanding how the database works. And then you need also to understand how the backups works, not only the application, for example. And uh, mostly I've done all this in consulting companies. So either for, for uh, uh, small projects during uh, many months or uh, after the DBA, uh, a few days of expertise, especially tuning. I like performance tuning because it's a good occasion to, to talk to operations and developers. 
So mostly in consulting company. So finally, uh, what I started four months ago is totally out of my zone of comfort because I'm not a consultant anymore. I'm not going at customers and I'm working on a different database. But behind that, the concepts and, and the ideas are, are the same. And about the advocacy programs like AWS Hero or Oracle Ace uh, Director, I started to, to share what I was learning in forums, for example. But, but for me, it was more a way to learn. When I was a developer and starting to understand how the database works, answering questions was my way to force myself to learn. And because there are things you think you know, but when you answer a question publicly in a forum, you need to validate it, and then you need to go to the documentation and maybe test it before answering. And this, this forces you to do that. And, and then I started blogging a bit with the same idea and also for self-documenting my learnings. And usually when you learn things and you share it, uh, it's useful also for others. So, so it encourages you to, to continue. And this is where I've been also to conferences. And I was working a lot with Oracle Database at that, at that time. And, uh, and uh, then I went in the, um, in the advocacy program, the Oracle ACE, which is a way also to meet other people at conferences. It's, I mean, you don't need this kind of program to meet other people, but it helps. Uh, and I've seen that uh, at Oracle. And when I started to work on AWS, Still databases, uh, the, the services I know in the AWS are mostly databases. Uh, and again, I quickly was admitted in the AWS uh, community and, uh, and as a data hero from what I've shared about Aurora or DynamoDB. And th this is where you really see that it helps to meet people because in the Oracle area, I was knowing a lot of people. Uh, I mean, the, the Oracle advocacy program was helping, but I didn't need it to contact product managers at Oracle or, or things like that. But I was new in AWS, and, and the, the Eros program helped me to, to meet people out of my database zone. This is where I've met more uh, serverless developers, for example. Because when you work on the database, you are usually far from, today it has changed, but a few years ago, for example, you didn't put databases on Kubernetes. You didn't think about a serverless database because a database needs a server and you cannot stop it. You need to know where are your data and, and all that. So those things changes with, with uh, the evolution of, uh, of containers and with the cloud. And with AWS Zero, I, I had very good discussion with people, not so familiar with databases, but interaction between developers and uh, and, and the database is really interesting. Yeah, this is a this is an amazing amazing story. Um, and and thank you for going into like all these different areas that we can now dive further into. It's great. Yeah, so I, I think a couple of them that were really uh, interesting here is the sharing publicly while learning aspect. Um, I, I've talked about this a few times with other people on the podcast and, and, and I think as well, like my, 
my journey was kind of similar with that too. I wrote a whole bunch of blog posts about serverless and building serverless applications. And it kind of gave me this like thing that I could stand behind and say like, here's this thing that I've done. Here's like the evidence of that experience. And then also, as he said, when people, when you say something publicly, people will come and try to, you know, ex say, oh, you know, that's potentially not exactly 100% correct. And so, you know, yeah, you have, you have to, feedback and discussion. Yeah, <laughs> you have to dive way into it. You got to read the documentation and you have to spend, you know, you might have written or wrote that piece in, you know, five minutes, that, that, that paragraph, and you spend an hour or two hours trying to figure out <laughs> how to answer the question that they just asked. Um, yeah, yeah. So I love that. So for those listening, do you want to kind of talk a little bit more about uh, what some of the benefits are of, uh, you know, because some people, they have that, that mental barrier where they, they think that, they don't have enough experience to share what they're learning publicly. What would you say to, to those people? Yeah, first it depends. I mean, it's different for, for each one. I will take an example. I, I started to, to answer on forums and then I wanted to, to, to start a blog, uh, a blog. But I was exactly in this uh, mood where I was reading a lot from gurus. And then I was like, I have nothing to say. And then I've seen uh, a blogger in, in, uh, about Oracle databases, very famous, Jonathan Lewis. And I've seen that he mentioned in his blog that someone has translated one of his posts in, uh, in Chinese. And then he has put the link to it. And then I got the idea. I asked the permission to translate a few, a few blog posts in French, my, my uh, native language. And then I started like that, not with my content, just translating for the French people who have difficulties to, to understand it in English. And when you start that, after just five or six translations, then you realize that you want to say the same thing, but maybe say it differently with your own words, your own experience. And this is where you realize that you have something to share. Even if, if the same topic has been touched by many, many people, the, the way you you show it, the way to talk about it, uh, that's different. And then you have readers who, who will prefer that. Yeah, no, this is a really good point. I, I, I know someone else who has uh, been thinking about doing that for another language as well. Um, and that's exciting. So hopefully they're listening and they get that, that kind of confirmation to, to try it out. You know? And even if English is the international language for, for IT, there are a lot of people we are not comfortable in English, so better translated. And also they will not ask a question in English on a, on a blog post mm -hmm. and something in their language. Uh, I did French, but uh, there are so many uh, Spanish uh, speaking uh, countries and, uh, and, and not so much content. So yeah, that's a good idea to start and to realize that, that it's easy to share. And what I would say is, it's always good to, to go out of uh, the comfort zone. And for example, this is what I'm doing there. Uh, a podcast is not where I'm the most comfortable, but it's really interesting. And we have a discussion that that, that is interesting. So always good to go out of the comfort zone. There is nothing to, to lose. Huh? Yeah, absolutely. And also to touch on that too, um, you know, I'm the host. I, I'm, maybe I'm supposed to also be just like, super comfortable doing podcasts yeah. <laughs> and i i think that i'm not either like i you know I, I it's like you show up you do it you get yourself out of the comfort zone you talk to new people learn all this new information um and you know insights come out of that that are really cool and, and new pathways and friends and stuff so 
um, yeah, definitely encourage everyone listening to also, you know, give a talk at a meetup, you know, write a blog article, you know, dip your toe in it, try it out. And I think good things, good things could happen out of it. So, um, yeah. And, and one other thing to touch on there was, uh, he said answering questions was really useful. Well, that's it. Was that just, was that more of like a stack overflow thing or on your own content? And is there a pathway to potentially learning where someone could start doing this to almost get um, like rep- repetitions in for uh, how to think about stuff more deeply on whatever they're interested in? For me, I, I started on, on a specific forum of databases, but what I really liked I have something special in the way I work. I know a lot of people, DBAs in databases, but in many places, I know a lot of people, for example, in databases, they they have their own script that they always use. And that's something I've never did. I always rewrite maybe the same queries, but this forces me also to to learn new things. Uh, In the forums, sometimes you see always the same questions. And you also see people answering and kind of upset of seeing always the same questions like, uh, did you search or do you know Google and all that without realizing that searching on Google is not easy if you don't have a small knowledge about what you are looking for. And, and I really enjoyed that may sound strange, but I really enjoyed answering the same questions again and again because my answers were better and better, or if not better, maybe smaller, because when you do it several times, then, then you, you do it better. And that, that was something also I learned, uh, is that you, you can repeat things. In IT, I don't like to repeat. I will spend more time trying to program something rather than repeating. But when it's about talking to people, explaining something, you have always some different way to put it. Yeah, this is a really good, this is a really good point. And uh, something that I've also seen in the forums, I think everybody that's a programmer that's been on Stack Overflow or in a specific database forum or the specific you know area that you're in, uh, there is comments like that. Um, and that's sometimes it's disappointing because it's the first thing that someone sees when they're trying to learn because um, they're obviously they're searching for questions or searching for answers. So they're trying to learn, they're trying to understand, but you pointed something out that's really good, which is sometimes when you don't know the question to search, uh, you don't know the vocabulary of the thing that you're in. Um, you don't know how to put together to, to look properly. I had someone I was teaching to, to really juniors in IT. Uh, and uh, I had someone, to, he, he told me, do not, do not tell me to search on Google. It's like uh, being uh, uh, in front of the sea and telling me uh, just swim. <laughs> it's too large. So uh, as you say, if you don't know which words or also where to search, you have many things. On Stack Overflow, you have also a wrong answer with uh, uh, I votes. And then you, you need to realize that maybe it's not the right answer or maybe not in your context. Because it's easy also to take an answer for one context and think it works everywhere. Yeah, this is a great point. Um, it's something that almost we almost need like a, a course in like how to search and look for things and how to because there is kind of a there's an experience that you build up over time and you, you've probably built it up. I've built it up a little bit as well. And it's like you go through Stack Overflow, for instance, and you look at the question or the answers and you're like, 
you just start to build up that muscle. You're like, no, no, no. Okay, that's close. No, no. And then you're like, all right, this is the closest to it. You read this, this, the comments underneath it to confirm that they're not calling it out for not being right. And then from that, you take it, you test it somewhere in a sandbox. And if it does work, then you kind of write, rewrite it your own way, put it into your program. But that's not like a natural flow and people kind of have to learn trip over, you know, things. Um, so that's, that's super interesting. Um, on that front, with the junior in, in IT, and, and it sounds like you've kind of mentored and worked with uh, people that are more on a junior level too. How, how do you go about uh, kind of introducing someone that's more on that junior spectrum to some of the more advanced things that, that you might be working with? That, that's a really difficult question because what I've seen also with juniors, there is also a difference. You were mentioning searching on internet or Google. And what I've seen, I, I'm the generation where I started to work without internet. So with book for the knowledge. And then when Google was there, it was not Google, it was Alta Vista. Or, then it was like everything, you can have any information. And this is where I learned to search. But for example, I see that my kids do not know how to search because they, they are born in, in a place where the content is there. You don't have to look for it. And that's also something that I see with, uh, with younger people, uh, juniors. The way of searching is not the same as the one I'm using, and it's not the same as older people are using. So you, you need to know the different tools and see which one can help you. Mm. Yeah, that's really interesting because it's kind of counterintuitive, right? Like you would think that because of the generation growing up with technology, all the answers out there in the universe uh, kind of already been thought about um, and accessible, that they would be more able to search and find those answers but it's the, uh, now it's almost like a mountain of content. And I know that every day, even, and, and specifically, you know, I'm sure this is happening and uh, even for very small areas too, uh, that we both work in where it's just like, at first it was like not a lot of content and you're like, oh, I wish it would mature a little bit more. And then it starts maturing and people start learning about it. And then you get this like flood of content and then it's trying to sift through, you know, uh, what things do I look at? What things do I take? And then if it is actively maturing as well, um, how, how do I know if this is up to date or not up to date? And if I'm, if I'm implementing a best practice of like, you know, November 3rd of 2021 or a best practice of, uh, 2019. Yeah. 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 The date is very important. And if you find a, a blog post without a date, then you don't even know yeah, if it's still, uh, the right answer. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and one thing that was kind of com coming up in this as well, uh, was, when you have something like, um, if you have two paths to go, do I get like a general skill set, uh, or do I go more to like a, a niche, a, a niche? Sorry. Um, and what are your thoughts on that? It sounds like almost maybe you've gone the route of a, a niche uh, versus more like trying to understand all of it. You've kind of like narrowed down into databases and into specific databases from there, and then built up a, a huge thing out of that. Uh, what are your thoughts? Yeah, but yeah, but that that also when I started on databases and on Oracle, I was lucky that it was a technology where you can stay for many many years and and then go into the detail, and and today that's very difficult because today if you learn a new technology, uh, you don't know if it will still be there in in uh, two or three years, and, and that's not easy. And I've seen that also when. 
when I started to look at other databases, I was like, should I go there or not? And for example, when uh, when Hadoop was there, and I was I was doing some uh, big data things, but in uh, in uh, relational databases, and I was like. Uh, should I completely move to Hadoop or not, or wait to see what happens? And finally, I didn't really do the move, just looking at it. Uh, today, with distributed databases, I really feel that it's the time to move there because I I think that 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 will stay for 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 a long time because we are moving in, in this. Or for example. Uh, Kubernetes at the beginning you you could have the same idea but today we we know that it is uh it is something that will be there and stay of course on databases i was late on kubernetes because it didn't make sense before uh be, before having a stateful sets uh, uh, to put databases on kubernetes but but today it's the way to go with cloud with the 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 way we need to to scale and and not care about uh, which server we run on? Yeah, yeah, and this is this is interesting because I've, I've gone through that similar decision too. Which is like, you know, I was learning serverless on AWS, and I saw cl like cloud offerings from like GCP and from Azure, and I went like, oh, you know, like now uh, I think um, Cloudflare even has functions. Like it was like all these new things were popping up. It's like, okay, do I go this direction? Do I stay where I'm at? Um, I think luckily, you know, the offerings from AWS in the serverless realm have been. The most mature and continued to be that way um but yeah it was definitely that that point where i could have easily started on like the gcp side or on the azure side or somewhere else completely you know made that uh, my niche and then maybe not had as as much of the momentum that i have currently because luckily aws has kind of been you know winning in that department um yeah so that's that's very interesting so if you can identify something that is like a more of a macro uh trend like you said kubernetes um, the idea of distributed databases, um, maybe the serverless offerings from like AWS now. Um, yeah. how, how, how do you think about that in terms of, and, and even more, more broadly in terms of like projects that are starting to pick up in the open source department um, or even packages that you might include in programs? When, you, when you're evaluating something like that, what type of things do you look for uh, in, with the idea of like longevity? Like this is going to be around for many years, and so I, I should really put focus into this. I, I don't think I'm really good to know it. So I, this is this is a place where I listen to others, and I see how I feel it. But 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 that's very difficult because uh, I mean, if it's technical, I can have an idea. If something is just a crazy idea that looks cool and and will not stay, or or if it's really the the, the good concept to 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 stay on it. But uh, decisions are not only uh, technical. Huh? Uh, IT is also like uh, fashion, huh? and if people like the product just because it looks cool, or just because uh, Google is using it, using it, and <laughs> and then everybody are, are going there, but that goes fast, but it can also uh, uh, end uh, fast. So no, I'm not, I'm I'm not completely good at, at those things. I I think I was lucky. Uh, for example, working on, on the Oracle database, I, I was lucky and starting to slowly look at Postgres, and that was also the, the right way when uh, for open source databases. Uh, so yeah, I, I think it was more luck. So <laughs> I have no, not a lot of ad advisors on that. 
Yeah, this is great. I think there there is like a sliver of, as a, a advice in there, which is you know be cautious and do a lot of research and look for the people that are you know maybe at the top of the field, listen to yep. what they say, and then keep listening to all the other people until eventually you can start seeing a pattern form. And that might not be an easy overnight thing, but um, yeah, okay. Awesome. Yeah, that that's what's nice. Also, going at conferences where you you see different kind of people. You 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 see the the, the juniors uh, coming to new technology and excited with it, and you see the, those old guys always wanted to use the same thing. And then you listen to to everybody, and you get an idea. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, on that note, we have uh, reinvent coming up uh, here at the end of the month, and so. I'm, I'm sure there'll be a lot more uh, things coming down the pipeline for for everything. Uh, all yeah. all thousand services that AWS offers at this point. Um, yeah, too many. <laughs> Just remembering the name is too difficult. <laughs> oh yeah, have you done the um, that logo test thing where you basically like there's there's some type of game where it shows you just a yes. random logo. <laughs> so hard, so difficult to do. Um, uh, getting, getting actually to, uh, a question that's very, you know, near and dear to my heart, which is like, uh, when it comes to serverless and databases and choosing a database, um, serverless, maybe 2019, maybe a little bit of 2020 and definitely before that, uh, trying to work relational databases into like with Lambda and connection pooling, uh, those things were kind of difficult. Have you seen that area develop, uh, more and, and now if you were, you know, talking to somebody that might be building a you know serverless application, would you would you steer them on AWS? Let's say, would you steer them towards like DynamoDB or or towards like a relational database? And how would you help them kind of make that decision? Yeah, that that's a very difficult thing because for the database, everything is different. I I really like DynamoDB because it's easy, but but there are limits. The problem is that a database, you put you put your data on it, so you need to know where your data is, and you also need some cache. And and databases have evolved to 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 have a lot of cache and efficient cache, uh, so that when you need to read data, you don't have to to go to the disk. Uh, and if if you are truly serverless, because this term can be used also for many things, if you are truly serverless. Uh, you have disks, uh, but, but you don't have a server with the memory that will keep your data in case you will query it or change it uh, later. And, and we see that with DynamoDB. You can scale because, uh, because data is sharded in, in many places, but each get will have to go to the storage, except if you had another service like, like uh, uh, the accelerator on top of it, which then is a server with memory. And so really depend on the use case. There are use cases where what you want is predictable performance and uh, two milliseconds is always okay and that's perfect. And there are use cases where you need more. On the other side, you have also Aurora, which is a real... Uh, uh, relational database with uh, memory and a lot of uh, things that are shared uh, and ma many sessions connecting to it. And they have also a serverless offer. But it's, it's still a database that is up with all that. It's just that the database can be stopped automatically when you don't use it or just uh, uh, lower the, the CPU consumption. But really depends how you see serverless. The first thing people want 
to see is uh, the billing side of it. You don't want to see any server in your, in your bill. So if you use DynamoDB, you will pay for data at rest, the storage, or in transit, the, the network and, and the, the get input, but, uh, but you don't pay for servers. And, but, but this is not technical. It's because you, you don't want to invest in servers. But I, I'm, I'm not really sure that it solves all problems because to lower the bill, then you will reserve some throughput and, and, and then you will start to, to think about the capacity. Yeah, but, thank you. Uh, oh. oh, yeah, yeah. So um, I was going to jump in because there's so much good stuff there. Um, and the second that you said uh, that uh, once you, when you need a cache and then you, you have DynamoDB and now you're in, including a different service and then there's a server, the first thing that jumped to my mind was like complexity. <laughs> you know, like there's so much complexity that can end up happening, um, you know, and, and, and that's like a really important note with this is that, uh, especially on the billing side too. So, um, you know, I think sometimes when we do calculations for like how much it costs to run something, uh, engineering time is like never considered. Um, although yeah. of course it's considered, but like the biggest thing is like, how much did that cost for the read and write, you know, but how long did it take for us to actually get this thing set up and then have it actually be performing and actually serving the customer need. And that amount of engineering time could sometimes uh, exponentially outweigh the cost of the data transaction. Maybe at scale, it ends up paying back off, but definitely for people that aren't like super huge enterprise companies that have already established user bases and all that stuff, um, you can almost trip over these things as you're building up um, and and not really calculate the, the full cost, I guess, of, of all this stuff. So, um, so yeah, so with that out of the way, then I guess when it comes to something like uh, Aurora uh, or serverless Aurora, does it come down to like, what your team is already comfortable with skill-wise when, when it starts going the, you know, do I use DynamoDB or do I go with a more of a relational model? And what are your thoughts on that? Like, how do you decide there? The, the, the problem is really that this decision usually do not look at the, the whole life cycle of the application and the data because we are talking about databases and data stays longer than applications. And then usually I see the decision taken because it's it's easy to start, and of course, you 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 are just a startup and you and you need to store some data and it's very easy to start with uh, with those services like uh, DynamoDB, but then you will pay it later because uh, you have some limitations and then you need more code, more code, and that's easy when you start, but this code you will have to maintain it, and this is where people are. I, I, I will say coming back to relational databases, not for all use cases, but it was like uh, putting everything on NoSQL and then realizing, oh, this use case, this use case, this use case, uh, it's not so easy uh, uh, to, to, to manage on that. And, and this is where it comes back to, to, to relational databases where it's, it may take longer to start, but when you have a good schema and you put data on it, then you know that your data will stay and, and you will not have to add more code later because it's also, it's not only about, uh, about the structure, but uh, also all the, the verification and the constraints. 
In a relational database, of course, you have to think about the data model. But when the data model is OK, you don't need code to check all many small business rules because they are enforced in the database. Yeah, this is a really good point. Um, just, to, just to rewind back to uh, easy to start with DynamoDB um, for, like, let's say, a startup. And as things start progressing, you have backend code that was written to handle that. And then it's like, oh, well, we need this other index to search it in a different way. And then maybe we like back up our data and then we create a new table that has an index and then we find a different way. And they were like, it, there ends up being a lot of like, you know, I don't want to use the word complexity over and over again, but a lot of complexity ends up popping up for sure. And I think, you know, I've seen that uh, personally in, in the past two years, basically the start of DynamoDB happening and then almost a what felt like was going backwards, going back to relational because they were from relational to uh, to NoSQL, and then uh, and then now coming back to it. But when you when you flag some of these things down, and when we start going, okay, uh, easy to start, which is you know good in some cases because uh, you know getting easy wins is important. Uh, but then as it really scales out, you got twenty plus developers that are working on stuff. Uh, you have huge data uh, requests coming through to the database, and you need that to be efficient. Maybe you have business analysts in the background that don't know how to search a uh, NoSQL database and they don't have all the tools they've had for the past five plus years to be able to do yeah. it. And then um, you need more services and you need yeah. to, to move the data in many services. Yeah. 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 And so you end up having this cascading like domino thing start happening. And and it's almost like it's 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 positive because uh, that's a reflection as well that like this new adoption of let's say like building serverless applications with like Lambda or API Gateway and Maybe you're using like AppSync and GraphQL, uh, and then you have DynamoDB in the background, and you start to hit up against those walls. And then now you have other teams that are now starting to adopt it, and they're going like the organization as a whole is like, wow, this is great. Let's keep building applications this way. And then, oh, hey, what's going on with the database? Why are we, <laughs> you know, like why are we hitting all these like issues, and why are we being throttled? And like, you know, uh, like how do we do reviews, and how do we share the DynamoDB code properly to interact with the database, and all those other things can start like adding up and uh, and then, as you said, out of, out of that, you need new services, you need new platforms, new products. Um, and uh, yeah, and so I guess uh, to that end, if somebody was already working with a relational database um, and they were starting to adopt serverless, um, is it kind of one of those things where you might attack maybe the more like uh, Lambda services first, API gateway services, um, and then start working in like a relational database? Uh, or if they were just getting their feet wet, would you still recommend them to start with DynamoDB as it might be like the easiest uh, easiest option? Like, where would you go in that It scenario? also depends on the database. But for, for, for example, if you just have to store documents, you can store them in, uh, in any Postgres-compatible uh, database as JSON or in Oracle. Or, uh, the, the relational databases have also evolved to, to store also documents. So you may also have the same kind of API because that's also what people like with services like DynamoDB, a simple API. Uh, and, and for me, coming from SQL databases, it was amazing to see that uh, it was last year when um, AWS added uh, uh, some SQL on top of uh, DynamoDB with Particle. Uh, I was like, cool, finally we find SQL everywhere because that's the case. We, we find SQL as an API everywhere. And I've seen a lot of serverless developers used to the, 
to the simple API, and they were like, oh, but that's dangerous because if you don't use the right rare clause, then you will scan the, the whole table. And yes, that's right. And finally, they prefer the limited API because it prevents uh, doing bad things. And for me, it's kind of strange, like limiting the features. I mean, larger feature should be, should be better. But when it is about starting a project on new technology, and, uh, and of course, it's not easy to learn and understand everything from the beginning. And then the simple API is also interesting. And, uh, and that's also something that evolves. For example, today I was looking at uh, an open source proxy where you have a MongoDB API that stores in Postgres. Probably something similar to what AWS is using in DocumentDB. And that's perfect because you have your, uh, your application with, using a simple API with put and get. Uh, but you can store it in a relational database. And then you can start to have, again, one database, but many APIs rather than many services. And that's a choice. I'm not saying that one is better than the other. But if you have one service that can serve and be performant for many use cases, it may be easier to manage for small or medium companies that cannot have a full team knowing DynamoDB, a full team knowing Aurora and, and that. Yeah, I think this is a, a really good point. Um, and so there's, I guess there's two things. So maybe let's tackle it first with the abstraction side of the, uh, the conversation. Um, with, with something like uh, uh, what you just mentioned around DynamoDB and SQL uh, querying, does it, does it start to get to the point where that abstraction, it's almost like it's almost like people are asking for it, but it's almost like mixing two different concepts together. And then that makes the, the water very murky. Um, is it like, should we have a strong boundary of like, if you're gonna use DynamoDB, use it in this way, it's gonna be different. It's gonna require like retraining, all that stuff. If you're gonna use relational, use it in this way. Um, do some of those abstractions end up uh, hurting it more than, more than helping? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, that's something we see. Because first, when I heard about SQL on top of DynamoDB, I, I was like, cool, because I like SQL. But it's, again, a different SQL. And having been working with many databases, there are no SQL that are equal. You, ha you have the standard that guides some syntax, but everything is different. And then, yes, as, as you say, maybe if you have n services and n apis on n services then you start to have a lot of combinations yeah 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 absolutely and so i guess in that in that case um would you lean more towards like if you're going to choose nosql donmodb like go all in in that direction if you can or if you're going to go relational and use a specific database there go all in there uh versus kind of mixing and because you mentioned one thing around once, you know, you have like a team and then they're trying to learn DynamoDB and then the new database pops up and they're trying to learn that too. And then it's just, does it get too much? And should, should you just go all in on like a single, a single choice until it... Uh, From my point of view, yes, because in SQL today, you can do everything. For example, if you take Postgres, uh, it's the 
the most close to the, the, the closer to the SQL standard and it has all features even uh, for analytics, even for documents, all that. So from my point of view, but also because it's easy, because I know it. I mean, there are many choices where the good answer is use what you know. For example, when, when I was in consulting, and, and for example, for databases, I know a lot of people, especially for Oracle database, they are like it must run on Linux, not on Windows, even if it can. And I, I, I'm not with this idea because uh, I like running a database on Linux because I know Linux. And I know that I have tools to troubleshoot, to look at the performance there. But if a company is running everything on Windows, they know Windows, they don't know Linux. So their solution will be uh, on the OS they know. And going to the cloud, we have the same thing. If people know some services, maybe they prefer to use those services, even if they are not the most optimal for their use case, but because they know them. And it's not one more item to have, one more skill to ask to, to their people. I don't know in your place, but I see in Europe, for example, the companies, uh, uh, it's very difficult for companies to hire people because there are so many companies hiring and, and so many technologies and small companies, big companies can build teams, but a small company must have in IT full stack developers uh, knowing many, many technologies that change and that's very difficult. So sometimes sticking to the few technologies that you know, and 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 then I have no, no name for it. I mean, if someone knows perfectly DynamoDB and knows the, the tricks to get good uh, modeling on it, then that's perfect. But if someone knows uh, relational databases, and think in need to use uh, DynamoDB, but try to build tables like he was doing in a relational database, that, that will not be very good. And the opposite is the same. If you take a relational database and all that you create is a table with a JSON and nothing else, it's not, it's not the best. So you can do everything. You have many APIs in the database, but but it's better to stick to the one that you know. Yeah, this is this is really good because I think it's, it's something that often, almost in every category, it seems like um, the more that you learn about it, the more you go like, oh, it's, it's definitely not black and white. It's definitely more of a gray area. Um, and, and unfortunately, that's not, you know, I think as humans, we want that like, yes, no, you know, like the this or this type of thing. Yeah. But it sounds like, Unfortunately, like everything else, we can't we can't be that that hyper specific. Um, and so, and you have also yeah. to balance in your choice. You have also to balance between the technologies that are boring but works, and interesting but <laughs> may 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 not work or may not be there for for the next years. And and you need also to be in the middle of that. Because working with Boeing technologies that works, okay, it works. But if it's Boeing, you find nobody to uh, to work on it. Mm. Yeah, this is a good point. Because also going back to the consulting uh, part of this conversation, when it's when you're when you're interacting with someone that maybe you're consulting, and there's a team of people there, one of the architects, or uh, maybe even a DBA, 
or even a developer, like somebody's bringing up an, a new database or a new technology. Um, how do you how do you kind of like frame that conversation to almost does it in your mind your your mind you might already be spinning and going okay well the team doesn't have experience with this it's a huge shift how how do you handle conversation in a scenario like that where um, do you let them experiment with it for just a little bit try it out do you do you veto it <laughs> yeah there is the experiment but but experiment it, it, it just saying the, the 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 tip of the iceberg I mean. I, for example, I think that MongoDB was really good and, and got success because it was really good at listening to developers, which is something that the other databases didn't do. Uh, listening to developers, what do you want? We have it. And developers do not ask for secure backups. They just ask for something that is easy to develop with. And they offered that. And, and then they have improved the, 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 the things in the back, but, but it was listening to, to, to users. But after a while, if you took decisions only on the first development, then you may have some problems because your data will be in, in something that has to handle failovers, that has to handle migrations, uh, uh, restore and disaster recovery and all that. So experimentation is good to get an idea about the development, but it's also, I, I know nobody does it, but it's also good to look at the documentation and the concept and the architecture. Uh, I mean, a database can be cool, but if I do not understand how it stores data, then I have a problem. Because I will, I will put data on it. That is important for me. And if it's a black box, then that's difficult. And, the, and this is also why uh, open source databases, you see the code that will process your data. And, and that's really cool. I've been working with Oracle where we don't see the code that process the data, but it's there for years and years and years. Or, for example, Aurora, you don't see the, the code and you don't even know how it works in behind because they do not document that. But it works for a lot of companies, then you have distrust. But a new database, if it's just a very cool API and I don't know what is behind, I don't think it's a good idea to, <laughs> to move there. Yeah, no, that's, that's perfect. But, but that's not difficult to... to to explain when people are driven by the developers who want something to add a line in, in their CV or the architect who wants the, the last thing he has read uh, <laughs> in a paper. So. <laughs> no, it's a really good point. Um, I know it's a joke, but it's actually par it's partly a joke, partly not a joke around the CV thing um, and, and adding, you know, fluffing your resume up. I think we see this all the time as well. It's like, and and I've been part of that as well uh, early on in my career where I was looking at options and uh, and I think I even got buy-in to be honest from who I was working with at the time that was like yeah go to the new thing because then we can like talk about it <laughs> so yeah, yeah. you know it's like so like they, they gave me approval to do it but also like um, those early days like immature services if you start adopting like I, I adopted um, not to throw any shade towards the AppSync team this was like right when it was released. Um, so like within like a month, I was using AppSync. Uh, and I I remember being so, uh, so, so frustrated and in the documentation and not knowing what to do and 
on the forums and trying to reach out to the product team that actually built AppSync and trying to figure it out that I, you know, a whole bunch of time ticked by. I, of course, gained a whole bunch of knowledge about AppSync at a very low level, uh, which was good for the rest of my career and still is today. Uh, but in terms of the actual project and, you know, customers and the actual overall business and who was actually like what the point of doing the development actually was, um, that sometimes got, that sometimes can get uh, sidelined by exactly what you just said, the CV. Um, and, and, and so how do you combat that? Like, how do you, how, like, uh, cause I can imagine like if we were going to play a scenario or a big company, there are these things being tossed out that people want to jump into, Maybe let's make an entire Kubernetes migration or something, uh, which obviously we know takes a, a lot. Um, as management, um, you hear this and then you're trying to go, okay, do we go this route? It sounds cool. How do you have an evaluation process where you don't make that wrong step? Is it, yeah, how would you, what, do you, what would you do there? Yeah, I, I would say that I never really had to to take the decision because in consulting I was more showing the different alternatives and at the end so the valid alternatives and at the end they choose uh, but it's sometimes very very difficult and it re really depends on the culture of the of the company I, I, I don't really have a solution for that and yeah so it depends on the company for example I've been working uh, 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 one year and a half at uh, CERN, and it's a big research uh, academic where there is a lot of politics, a lot of people, and, and there, of course, you have many decisions that are taken also for different reasons. And you, you can say anything, it will go the way it goes. And for the good and the bad, there are also good things in, in trying new, new things. But... Uh, it's very different. I've been also working with uh, with small companies. When you have a small company and they uh, take uh, a consultant for for two or three days of expertise, uh, then they will not discuss for one hour about something. Uh, if you just say, "I know that this works," they they will take it. Huh? <laughs> yeah, 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 absolutely. Um, it's something I I just thought about. There's a kind of a everything is a gray area. <laughs> So it's like, <laughs> even with this, right, like, uh, if we think about the counter side to it, um, I've definitely been in, in environments, um, you know, as a consultant as well, where the amount of approval process and, you know, six different gatekeepers, double management review, stuff like that, it, it almost, it can discourage people that might have good ideas to almost not share them. Um, and so almost that idea of, uh, you know, let's stick with what works can almost run the risk of uh, losing like uh, really talented people that are trying to bring good ideas to the table. Um, and, and so you almost have to be conscious, of, uh, conscious of that too. It's a very complex thing. Um, I, I've yeah. always preferred small companies. And, and when I was, when I went, went at CERN, I knew it, uh, that it was a very big company, but it was also like a dream. But yeah, I, I know where I'm happy and comfortable in small companies where with clever people who trust each other and no politics on it. Awesome. Yeah, yeah that's fantastic. So I, I guess like as we're coming to like towards the end, let's uh, let's jump into Yugabyte a little bit. Uh, you're a developer advocate there. Uh, you've been interacting and working with them for a bit. What is Yugabyte DB? Uh, if you had to give people kind of an idea pitch for it and if they should include it in their applications or 
evaluate it. Um, yeah. So the idea of Yogabyte DB came from the, the from Google Spanner. Everything started from from Google Spanner, where Google had a lot of applications on NoSQL on on Bigtable, and uh, as I mentioned uh, before, it's easy to start, but then you realize you need a lot of code to work around the lack of transactions, the lack of referential integrity, the lack of joins. And this is where Google had the idea to, to build a database that has the same scalability as uh, NoSQL, easy to shard, uh, but with SQL features on it. And, uh, and Spanner has limited SQL features on it and, uh, and runs only on, uh, on the Google Cloud. And then others came, like CockroachDB, for example, with more SQL features. And at that time, then uh, the idea of the Yugabyte uh, DB founders, who came from Facebook and Cassandra and Dutchbase, their idea was if the future is to have this scalability with a lot of SQL features, then rather than building them and putting them one by one, and that can take years, the idea was to take Postgres, so the most popular open source database uh, with a lot of features and extensibility to build new features, and to plug a distributed storage on it. So this distributed storage, and then you have all nodes that are equal. So this is very different from having a primary database and standbys or even readers. For example, in Aurora, you, you can have 15 instances of, of the database, but only one will be writing. The other are only readers. With a distributed engine, you can connect to any node and you can read and write on it as if you see the whole database. And in behind, of course, there are uh, a lot of technology and algorithms to manage the consensus because you can have transactions that touch data in many nodes. So the idea is really on the top, the query layer is Postgres. You connect, you don't even need a specific driver. You connect with the, dri the Postgres driver and, and you can take your, your Postgres data model and just uh, import the dump in Yugabyte. But instead of storing in Postgres tables, the heap tables and, and the indexes, instead of that, it stores the, the rows in the distributed database. That is a key value database called DocDB. It's based on RocksDB. So each shard of a table is a small RocksDB database. And uh, then you have a consensus to uh, to manage uh, first because you have replication also between the, the nodes for high availability. So to manage that, you write to the quorum so that in case you you have uh, one node down, you know that you can still read consistent data from the other nodes, and uh, and that's the idea. So it's really growing. We have for for the moment we have a lot of customers who are coming from Cassandra, for example. So this kind of customers uh, coming from Cassandra, they want the same scalability, but they want more features uh, like uh, relational table, foreign keys, secondary indexes, uh, procedures, everything that you find in Postgres. And, and they go there. And we are moving very fast in uh, implementing 
all the features. So for the moment, for example, we have only optimistic locking, which you find in new applications and especially applications uh, built to, to scale uh, on that. But if you want to take legacy applications that have been built for Postgres, for example, then there is a point where you will need to lock the rows and wait rather than uh, get a message and retry. And those things, we are implementing them. So, so what is really cool also is after having been working on an old that mature database, I'm now involved in really a new thing where, where it's going. Uh, I, I think it's going for the future because, because we need a distributed database. We need to scale to more than one node. Uh, for a database, as we need it with the applications, and uh, and then it's coming, and it already works. Uh, and uh, the the extensibility of Postgres, and also it's open source, uh, and and that's also something very important because we have people who contribute. If they need one more feature, they they can do it also. Yeah, all that all that is amazing, actually. I think you. I'm sure the audience completely loves that you just broke down as well. And um, around like things like uh, Aurora, one write instance, so you have 15 total. 14 of those are read instances. Um, that's that's so cool to hear that like how the under workings of uh, Yugabyte DB actually uh, operate, um, and uh, the idea of distributed storage and and kind of how revolutionary that sounds. That's pretty awesome. Um, if somebody was and, to, and to, I discovered oh, that recently, for for example, mm. I never tried to to run a database on Kubernetes before, and now now it's native because all nodes are equal. So you just add, you scale up the the pods, uh, and and then you scale your database without having to think about I must redirect the writers to the primary one and and all that. Yeah, that's just fantastic. Um, the question I had popping my head is around, uh, like let's say. Uh, people that are listening, maybe cloud developers working on AWS, um, they're hearing good things about Yugabyte DB. Um, maybe they're already using something like Dynamo or Aurora, and maybe they're at that point where they're like, "Yeah, let's let's start looking at this as like a real option." Um, do they just go about deploying this into their AWS account? Can it be completely, you know, offline where they're running everything in like a private AWS account with no external access? Um, how does how does all that stuff play out? Everything is possible. So that, that's also what, what is cool. You can deploy it really as you want. Of course, you can deploy it on AWS. And, and we have many customers on AWS because when it is about uh, infrastructure, that's perfect. Uh, and it can be you can deploy it on EC2 instances, but you can also deploy it on uh, Kubernetes. And uh, same for all clouds. Uh, and you can also deploy it on premises in Kubernetes or not. You really have the choice. Each node, you, as long as you install the software on a node and it's up, and of course, nodes can uh, talk to each other, then you, you can do whatever you want. Even multi cloud. For example, we have a customer, he has some nodes in uh, Azure and some nodes in uh, Google Cloud. And that's their choice for some reasons. I don't know if they will stay like that uh, because it has also a cost. You need to pay for, for the interconnect between the cloud, but you know that you can choose. And also if, if there is a very big failure in the cloud, 
or some limits. For example, uh, uh, yeah, those customers are, are usually in retail where you have this uh, Black Friday. And uh, I mean, if you run on AWS, uh, are you sure that there is enough power for the Black Friday of Amazon itself and all the people who have this activity on it? So having a few nodes in another cloud, you know that you can also, also scale there. That's crazy. That's not for all com all uh, enterprises, uh, of course. So the big ones in uh, in retail, but uh, but there is a need for that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, and that's something too. It's like you said, like the big companies that their sites down Black Friday, they're it's down for fifteen minutes, and they're losing millions of dollars already. Yeah, and that's yeah. that's crazy. So um, and, when it comes and with to, with oh, the application, they do that for years. With the application, it's easy to 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 scale uh, quickly, and and now we need to do the same with the database. But of course, we need a database that is able to uh, to shard the data and reshuffle the data when uh, when the topology changes. Yeah, and to this, uh, one more question I have before we we get to that wrap up point: um, Is there a fully managed version of this? Because I know they mentioned Kubernetes running it yourself or EC two. Is there a any type of things like that in the works or already yeah. exists? Yeah, so the, the database itself is fully open source, even the enterprise features like encryption and uh, backups and uh, all that. Uh, but of course, there is a commercial offer because <laughs> there are people in the company uh, uh, working on it. And the commercial offer is the management part of it. Means that you can install it yourself and install a big cluster on Kubernetes, but of course you will have to manage it. There are things that are done automatically by Kubernetes, but others not. For example, if uh, if you lose uh, worker nodes and, and their storage, you you have to to add them, for example. And for that, we have a platform. So that's uh, commercial. Uh, we have a platform to manage it easily, and we have also a cloud. So the cloud. Uh, uh, was uh, announced uh, in September. So we have also a cloud where you just provision a database. On, on the cloud you choose, you choose, for example, AWS, and you can see any region. So, so you, you put it where you want. And it is managed, means that if you want to upgrade, for example, you just click Upgrade, and it will rolling upgrade the nodes. If you don't have the platform or the cloud, you can still do rolling upgrade, but you have to manage it or automate it yourself because uh, depending on the replication factor you have, you can have only one node down. So if you, if you start to doing it manually, but you, you stop more nodes that you can before starting them, then the database will, uh, will stop. So the advantage of the managed platform, whether it is just the software or the cloud, is that this is automated. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that, that ties back into that engineering cost thing that we've talked about, um, <laughs> trying to build the cost of like, oh, do we pay Gigabyte DB to like run it for us and manage it? Uh, or do we try to save like the money, but actually you're not saving because you're having to invest hundreds of engineering hours to try to rebuild the same thing and then maintain it and then keep that knowledge and then that person leaves and then who knows how to run it, <laughs> you know, and you're trying to scramble and yeah, a lot of stuff. And, can and, and today we, we see that in the clouds. Uh, there are so many services, we need managed uh, service. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So yeah, so as, as we're coming to a close here, uh, uh, is there anything that, you know, uh, any final thoughts that you want to mention or uh, areas that you want to promote, maybe at talks or uh, anything that's going on? 
not just saying that it's really good to get out of the comfort zone and that's something, for example, I, I moved. For me, the, the big change when going to Yugabyte was that I have 20 years of knowledge on Oracle. So after 20 years, of course, you have a bit of expertise and that I don't use anymore. So I, I was like uh, starting from, from something new and all the things I, I knew, all my experience, like most of the lines in my in my CV, I, I don't use it anymore. But but that's really nice because then you realize that your experience is not only the technology that you have in your CV and the concept, the way databases uh, work or are used by developers. Uh, those things stay. So so yeah, if for people listening and thinking about changing uh, the kind of job or starting a blog or talking at conferences, just just try it. Awesome. Yeah, that's that's amazing advice. Um, and and again, uh, thank you so much for uh, to being on the podcast. Thank you. That was great. Yeah, awesome. And uh, to wrap up, for those listening, this has been the Talking Serverless Podcast uh, with Ryan Jones. If you like our show and want to learn more or hear more, check out Talking Serverless IO. Uh, you can also find us on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts. If this was valuable, definitely let us know on Twitter so we can do more of that. Um, and of course, uh, we'll see you next time as we sit down with another fantastic guest. Thank you.